there's a book coming out called The Best of Inquiring Mind. And Inquiring Mind is the journal that you'll find on the back table there. And this fall will be the 25th anniversary of The Inquiring Mind, of which I am the co-founder and co-editor. And uh, it's exciting to have this book coming out. Um, partly it, it gives kind of a history of uh, Dharma in the West. And it features everyone from the Dalai Lama to Orlando Cepeda, who had a 294 batting average and hit 300 home runs. But he said uh, when we interviewed him that if he'd have found Buddhism bef- while he was still playing baseball, he would have hit 500 home runs and a batting average of at least 300. Um, anyway, tonight I thought I would read you a few excerpts from some of the uh, articles and contributors and uh, personalities that have been in this journal over the last 25 years. Uh, it's good dharma, and it's, uh, it is a, a panorama of the history of Buddhism in the West. Um, and to begin, I'll show you a copy of... Edition number one, raggy old thing, little newsletter kind of thing. Joseph Goldstein on the cover. He was Joseph Goldstein was the one who sort of said we need a journal, and gave me the assignment. Uh, on the back is a cartoon by R. Crumb, which he donated, and it's a, a little guy with a dunce cap on writing on the blackboard over and over, cessation of desire, cessation of desire. (laughs) What's really interesting is the fact that listed here are group, uh, sitting groups, of which there are about 15 in the United States, and retreats available, this is 1984, uh, retreats available. In, there are about ten, about ten in the United States and Canada. A couple in uh, Sweden, one in Sweden, one in Switzerland. But you know, that's that's kind of it. Of course, now this is the this is the retreat schedule. There are as many retreats just in Northern California now, and this is retreat schedule uh, Dharma centers all over the Western world the United States and abroad and the sitting uh, sitting groups just endless endless so that's there's your evidence you know if you want to know whether Dharma has taken hold in the West or not there's your evidence it's been uh, it's been an interesting journey uh, as I said Joseph Goldstein who was, has been in the journal many times uh, was the one who sort of came up with the idea that we had to have one. So I'll read a little excerpt from our first interview with him. Uh, after he, he had been teaching for about 10 years at that point. 
and we asked him uh, what question he got asked the most. He said, uh, well, the preface to the question that's asked the most is, if there is no self, then fill in the blank. The idea of selflessness seems to be the hardest concept for people to understand. So we asked him if that was different, is, a, is characteristic of Westerners, and he replied, In Buddhist cultures, the concept of selflessness is part of the cultural conditioning, whereas in the West, it's almost the opposite. The classic example being Descartes, I think, therefore I am, which revolves around proclaiming a sense of self and then trying to figure out what it is. And he went on to say, one of the most wonderful things in teaching retreats is to see people begin to open to that understanding of selflessness. It's tremendously liberating to begin to see there's nothing to protect, nothing to solve, and that rather than necessarily working out our problems, we can stop identifying with them. Another uh, wonderful teacher who we featured uh, several times in Inquiring Mind is Ajahn Amaro, who was sent over here by his teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, who was sent to England by Ajahn Chah, who was Jack's teacher also. And Ajahn Amaro was, uh, came over to set up a monastery here in Northern California, which he's done up at Abayagiri. Wonderful place. If you ever get a chance to go up there, stop in. Uh, they're very welcoming, and uh, he's a very sweet man. I remember when I first met him, I first met him interviewing him for The Inquiring Mind, and he said he'd been a hippie and uh, kind of traveling around India uh, in the early 70s, and he stopped in at a monastery, and he said, boy, this like looks like more fun than any other kind of life I possibly could have imagined. And he went in and he ordained and has been ordained ever since. So this is what he had to say when we were talking. He talked about uh, how Western meditators are, uh, especially in the Theravada tradition, which is our the tradition that uh, Vipassana meditation comes out of and that we're teaching here, uh, that Ajahn Amaro says we're a little stuck in uh, retreat mode. He said, one reason for the retreat emphasis is due to the Asian systems that have fostered many of our teachers and styles of practice, such as S.N. Goenka, Mahasi Sayadaw. The disciples of those teachers emphasize a very controlled retreat situation as the primary path. Retreat, retreat, retreat. Those teachers have had enormous influence and have helped tens of thousands of people, but I think that their style has led to this imbalance, the unhealthy separation between life and retreat. Of course, if you go on retreats for 20 years, you can create tremendous inner space, but it can become almost like a police state. You just clear the streets of all the unruly inhabitants of your mind. And while you may get them off the streets, the gorillas will still be active underground. So when you leave the retreat, you begin to experience your ordinary life as difficult and turbulent. Then you can't wait to get to the next retreat. He said, I was speaking generally and exaggerating a bit, but he was 
describing, he said, the, um, the situation that I think to some degree is true. Now, this is a, a younger generation uh, has begun appearing on the roles of the teachers in the last 10, 15 years or so. And one of them is Diana Winston, who is up there right now teaching the Young Adults Retreat. And she also was a, uh, a monastic for a while. She ordained as a nun. And she wrote an article for us. And this was the first paragraph. The night before I left for Burma to ordain as a Buddhist nun, I held a goodbye gathering with a group of my friends in San Francisco. Moving around the room, I asked everyone in the circle to offer me blessings for my trip. The replies ran a loving but predictable gamut from wishes for health and adventure to a safe return. But when I got to my friend Maura, she paused for a moment and then said, My blessing for you is menstruation. Huh? The room was stilled by a confused silence. Well, she continued, when you're there, if you lose touch with yourself, if you become overwhelmed by an ascetic male-dominated tradition, when you bleed, you can remember your connection to the earth and yourself as a woman. And... uh, that's one of the areas, uh, as, as the Dharma has come to the West, that uh, we've, pr- we've tried to pay attention to the fact that it was so male-oriented, male-dominated in Asian traditions, and uh, how women were not, were, were mostly servants to the monks if they were allowed to be part of the monasteries, and uh, we've really tried to equalize that. Of course, uh, the Dharma is coming to America, is becoming American Buddhism, and it's taking on some of the qualities of our civilization, our culture, uh, trying to be fair and equal and democratic and uh, non-discriminating. So it's a, and it's a constant uh, process of, of altering, really, what are centuries-old traditions. And it hasn't been easy, if you ask uh, some of the women who've, who've struggled to really... Uh, to really become, you know, a part of the Buddhist world, especially when when they've gone to Asia to study. This is uh, from an article by written by Kate Leela Wheeler, a, f- a fairly well known uh, writer, uh, author. She won a couple of literary prizes, and she's now also teaching the Dharma. And she wrote us an article called Meat Puppets. Pus, boogers, pee-pee, poo-poo. Would you believe that there is a meditation practice based on contemplating these items? It isn't for two-year-olds. It's for adults. And it's intended to lead to peace of mind, not agitation, amusement, or disgust. It's one of the classic meditation practices of the Theravada tradition, an orderly contemplation of the 32 parts of the body, starting with the hair of the head and ending with urine. If this sounds gruesome, consider that life is somewhat gruesome. No one survives. Our opinions and beliefs about life and death won't offer us any special privileges. Worse yet, it's the nature of all bodies not only to die, but to rot, crumble, shiver, itch, 
and to display various forms of ugliness. Yet the extra pain that all of us give ourselves over this entire situation seems, on reflection, unnecessary. Buddhism offers a number of practices designed specifically to cut through our delusions about the body. In the Vasudhimagga, a, a, a commentary to the Pali Canon it describes the face as a as full of holes like an insect's nest. Trying to break your attachment, you know. The brain is the color of milk gone sour. And if you if you ever want to read a really a really good horror novel, read the uh, instructions for the uh, bodily contemplations uh, at the cemetery, the nine cemetery cemetery reflections that the Buddha instructs his monks to go sit among the corpses and see the different corpses, corpses in different stages of, stages of decomposition, festering and blue and being eaten by hawks and worms and jackals and and then to reflect, my body is like this and such it will become and will not escape it. These are the, these are the practices we don't do so much in the West, you know. <laughs> we, like the, we like the ones that kind of pretty up the self and, you know, bolster the self. And we do self-esteem practices. Okay, and then... Uh, Buddhism, when talking about Buddhism in America, you have to talk about Jack Kornfield, who is uh, one of the central figures and uh, one of the, the inspirations, one of the, the great energy sources that keeps this place running. And uh, you might have heard him give a talk on advice from the Dalai Lama, which was originally an article in The Inquiring Mind. Uh, and this is one paragraph that I think really is uh, interesting for us as we try to decide whether we're Buddhists or not, or you know, if we're just meditators, or what how, what's our relation to this uh, body of wisdom and these practices. The spirit of our meeting. This is Jack Cornfield's article. The spirit of our meeting with the Dalai Lama was very empowering. At one point he said, drop the titles. You don't need to call yourself Lamas or Roshis. The, the Dalai Lama was meeting with a lot of Western uh, teachers and psychologists. You don't need to call yourself Lamas or Roshis. Drop the costumes. Change the teachings to fit your own culture. Even I am not sure about some of our teachings about heaven and hell. So maybe the Dalai Lama is a heretic too. Except that I am the Dalai Lama and they won't kick me out. But you must see what is true for yourself and what is true for your culture. You must be the judge of that. We have to make these changes, even if some of our Asian teachers don't understand. One of the ways that Buddhism is entering our culture is uh, in secular ways through the use of mindfulness, which has entered many institutions, medical uh, facilities, uh, dealing with stress, pain management, etc. We've had John Kabat-Zinn in our journal several times. Uh, one of the 
main teachers who's brought the practice of mindfulness and meditation into medical settings. He says, the motive for coming to a class in mindfulness-based stress reduction in the first place is very profound. Remember, people are not coming to learn meditation. They're not coming because they have concerns about how they fit into the world or about interconnectedness or meaning. They are coming because they have cancer or heart disease or chronic pain. They are coming to relieve their suffering or to gain control in a new way. They have experienced the limits of medicine. Here we are suggesting that maybe there is something you can do for yourself that no doctor or anybody else can do for you. What they are facing is pressing and immediate like something's on fire. This, is, of course, is wonderful motivation to come to meditation practice. The first thing we observe over the course of eight weeks are major improvements in people's symptoms, independent of what kind of medical problem they have. This includes not only physical symptoms such as pain, heart palpitations, headaches, and blood pressures, but also psychological symptoms such as anxiety, depression, anger, and hostility. Over this period of time, there are dramatic changes in the majority of participants. So, very uh, powerful, uh, a powerful uh, testament to the power of meditation. I've heard uh, also that meditation uh, prevents tooth decay. That it actually, no, but seriously, it actually changes the salivary, uh, certain chemicals in the, in the salivary glands and uh, less corrosive, uh, the, the moisture in your mouth is less corrosive, so it does, it prevents tooth decay. <laughs> Um, um, meditation seeping into the world of Western psychology as, as sort of the other end of the Western psychology that's medicating everybody, that is, is meditation. And one of the main change agents in that field is Mark Epstein, who's, uh, who meditates uh, in this tradition and has written several books probably the most important uh, or the most uh, well-known one called Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart. He, when we interviewed him, he said, I feel that the materialism that is endemic to our culture has infiltrated our way of thinking about psychology. So we idealize a perfect self and believe that by building it up through self-improvement, self-knowledge, self-discovery, self-esteem, We can create a self that won't suffer anymore. What the Buddha says, and many great psychoanalytic thinkers would agree, is that any notion of a concrete, non-suffering self is an illusion. In the Buddhist view, in order for a person to be happy, the ego has to keep unraveling. So the ego comes into existence briefly when it has to accomplish something, and then it dissolves. The self is always forming and deforming, evolving and devolving. If we can make way for that process, instead of getting it in the way of it, trying to solidify a self, then we can start to experience ourselves as we really are. Most recently, the Dharma has been uh, 
both getting the endorsement of and uh, encountering and, and cross-feeding with neuroscience, cognitive science. And we were fortunate enough to interview Francisco Varela, uh, a very famous evolutionary biologist and Tibetan Buddhist who uh, died uh, fairly young in uh, about uh, eight years ago now. We posed this to him. One of the most interesting and somewhat shocking conclusions currently emerging from cognitive research is scientists' apparent inability to find a self or director in the brain who runs our personal drama. He said, With few exceptions, cognitive scientists have come to understand the egolessness of self. What is surprising, however, is how little their scientific conclusion is taken personally by them. Many cognitive scientists close the door of the lab after studying all day about the selflessness of the brain, and they go right back to their normal self-absorbed life. He said, My hypothesis is that evolution has shaped human beings to disregard the basic sources of our being. We were built to forget how we were put together. Being aware of that process would make us slightly hesitant toward ourselves and our behavior. It's like a centipede looking at itself walking. It might very well become all tangled up. So we are born with a bias to pay no attention to the original sources of the self and to simply operate in the world. That is why you can have an intellectual understanding of egolessness, or anatta, while the emotional root that weaves that understanding into your life remains absent. He said, uh, the brain is built not to uh, believe in evolution, and it is built not to believe in the Dharma. We laughed about that. Um, one of my favorite teachers, uh, thinkers, uh, mentors, is, has been Joanna Macy. I don't know if you're aware of her work. Um, who is very active in um, creating a better world and uh, creating a critique of our, what she calls our... Uh, Industrial Growth Society. And uh, if you ever get a chance to read her her books, Coming Back to Life is one. Um, Dharma and Development is another. She says, We will heal by what Robinson Jeffers called falling in love outward. Our mission is to fall in love with our world. We are made for that, you see, because we are dependently co-arising. It is in the dance with each other that we discover ourselves and lose ourselves over and over. She said, we, don't ha- we shouldn't think about being liberated from life, but liberated into life, losing ourselves in our identification with all living beings, losing ourselves 
in our understanding that we are perfectly human. Not trying to get, get away from it. Not escaping it. Even though our, this journal has been primarily uh, a journal of the Theravadan community, uh, people doing Vipassana meditation primarily, we have uh, paid attention to other traditions. And often because many of the teachers in this tradition go and study in other traditions, one of the teachers that many uh, spirit rock teachers have studied with, a Tibetan Buddhist, is uh, Sokni Rinpoche, who, who does retreats here regularly. Uh, teaches Dzogchen, which is a very advanced, uh, considered sort of an end-stage meditation in many uh, Tibetan Buddhist schools. But they decided, uh, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that Theravada meditators, that Vipassana meditators, had enough, if, if you've done a bunch of Vipassana retreats, You've had enough preliminaries and you can understand the the teachings of Dzogchen, which is really based on open, spacious, empty awareness and seeing all things as empty. And uh, it's a very subtle and sophisticated teaching, beautiful teaching. I mean, it it just... uh, Talk about bliss... Resting in the open, empty awareness is pretty blissful. He says, I think this teaching is especially good for Americans because everything here is considered so real, too serious. And because you think everything is very real, you get crazy. You have a real problem. You want real life, real happiness, real meaning, real, real, real. You're too greedy. And even though you don't know that about yourselves, you don't know how to let go of it. Dzogchen can cut that very effectively. Moreover, I see that you have high-class confusion in America. I can see it in people's eyes. Generally, when I see people who live in poverty and have no opportunity to work, I see a dull confusion in their eyes. When I see Americans who are confused with so many things to do, so many things to have, so much intellectual this and that, I see their eyes always look look outward. Their eyes show a speedy, high-class type of confusion. Dzogchen is very useful for dealing with that type of confusion. Beautiful. We also interviewed uh, Miranda Shaw, who is... Uh, scholar uh, and an expert on Tantra. We, of course, were interested in Vajrayana. I have been interested in Vajrayana for for all my, uh, ever since I encountered it in, in studying Buddhism. And it's always seemed so esoteric and, you know, hidden. But it's really just a, a beautiful system of uh, taking the energies of life and Allowing them to be part of the spiritual path, you know, allowing them to be uh, be present in our lives with a kind of sacred attitude toward them. And of course, you, you mentioned Tantra and everyone always thinks, aha, sex. This is what she had to say. Practice with a consort 
is not synonymous with physical union. I prefer to use the word intimacy rather than sexuality because sex is not the essence of the practice. That's our impoverished Western view of what intimacy entails. There are many other practices that tantric partners do together. One of these practices is gazing, long sessions where the partners cultivate pure vision by gaining the ability to see one another as divine, as embodied manifestations of Buddhahood, and as enlightened in essence. There are other exercises where they simply touch each other's fingertips or touch the palms of their hands, or they eat and feast together as a practice of cultivating and channeling their bliss. Why are you on this path? Not that path, huh? (laughs) We, uh, for a while, all the Theravada teachers, many, almost all the teachers here, I think, I I don't know of any, Jack, I don't, don't know if he went, but almost all the teachers went to visit a Advaita Vedanta teacher in India named Harilal Punja, also known as Punjaji, who was this jolly man, a disciple of Ramana Maharshi, uh, just a delightful being, and people went to hang out with him. And uh, I don't know if you know, the, the Advaita Vedanta technique is to just sort of assume that that it's all just the play of the gods and that really there's nothing to do no practice, nobody to practice, no no you and it, no place to get, you know, it's just... So uh, I went and interviewed him. <laughs> I tried to interview him. <laughs> and I kept, I would say like, uh, uh, well, Punja, uh, why, do you, why do you teach this way? And he'd say, who's asking this question? <laughs> and, and then I'd say... Well, no, I get that. I understand that. <laughs> I want, I'm here to interview you. I really want to hear your answers. And we went through this for about 20 minutes. You know, he kept saying, who wants to hear the answers? I said, I've done that. I've asked myself that. I, I know I don't know who's here, you know. <laughs> this microphone wants to hear the answers. I don't. Anyway, he finally relented and we, we had a good time. He said... Whatever you do and whatever you don't do is all empty. Every day I see people who have had many different teachers and have done all kinds of practices, and they come here and they say, we're here seeing you because you don't give us any teachings and you don't give us any practices. Now we don't have anything to do. We just laugh. (laughs) And that's kind of the way it was there. It was really just sit around and laugh with him. And then, uh, while we're in the while we're in the Hindu world, uh, we Ramdas has appeared many times in the journal, being a a Hindu, uh, and uh, even though his main practice has been bhakti yoga, devotion to his teacher, uh, uh, named Karoli Baba. And uh, he, he's, his main practice has been Vipassana meditation, and he's done many retreats uh, with us. Uh, 
so once we were talking to him, and he said he, he liked studying with this very strict master, this very strict Vipassana teacher named Upandita. He says, I like studying with Upandita because I'm so used to conning people. I'm so used to being charming and charismatic. People always want something from me. It can be just a smile, but they want something. Upandita didn't come out of this culture. I was just another 50-year-old guy with a mustache and a mind. That's all he saw. He didn't see Ramdas. So when I met him, it didn't work. I couldn't charm him. It was so delicious to me. You don't know how desperately I wanted that experience of not being able to charm somebody. Because the minute I charm somebody, that paranoia begins. They don't know the real me. And then uh, we asked him about the, the, the technique, which is a very strict uh, technique of observing and labeling every second of your experience. He said, at first I, sh- I, I felt I should proceed very fast, Ram Dass says. So I kind of conned myself into thinking I was staying with my primary meditation object longer than I was. I reported it, and both Upandita and the translator laughed at me. I was glad they busted me. They busted me within two days. That was wonderful. <laughs> I saw Ram Dass in, in Maui, where he's living now, uh, earlier this year. He's doing fine and uh, goes swimming now with a big buoyant device. He swims with one arm because one arm is paralyzed from his stroke. But we were sitting once and talking, uh, at, and, and we were talking about how you know, we're just kind of being all being moved through through this life by primal instincts and our personality and, you know, if you believe in reincarnation, by your past karma and, you know, uh, and, and I suddenly came up with this line that I just love. I said, Ram Dass, you're right. You're not the doer. You're the dude. <laughs> Anyway, that was a good one. Um, One of my delights in being the the co-editor of this journal is is sort of having an excuse to talk to some of my heroes. And included are... uh, The beatnik poets were my heroes. I mean, they're, they're the ones who... I came out here to to find and be like, you know, I I wanted to be a beatnik when I came to the Bay Area. But it was 1967, you know. It was was too late to make the scene, man. (laughs) So they they assigned me to the hippies instead. But but being a a Buddhist and then becoming a, you know, a journalist uh, in the Buddhist world, I got to meet some of them, interview them, and uh, Gary Snyder was among them. Who I really have admired of all the, of all the, the that generation of beat uh, writers who were interested in in the Dharma. He was the one who actually went and really studied for ten years in Japan, uh, and then started a, a little Zen center up in the Sierra Nevadas. This is what he said he wants to see Dharma, how he wants to see Dharma evolve in, evolve in America. He said, what I look forward to is not Zen, 
in America, which means to me the replication of robes and temple procedures, married priests with station wagons, Japanese business contributions, expensive downtown centers, and some sort of hybrid Japanese Protestant etiquette with its own kind of dourness. Instead, I'm working toward a Chan on Turtle Island, which for me means an earlier, more open, Tang Chinese sort of spirit, old women trading insults and tea cakes with wandering monks, really chopping literal wood and carrying actual water, a Zen for ordinary people and a few ghosts and spirits thrown in on a real continent of mountains and streams on which we ask how to include in our zendos the sagebrush and the rabbits, the farm workers and the growers of Manteca and Turlock, as well as the highly educated, slightly troubled professionals. (laughs) All of that will be more fun, but it will take a while. And it will take a while. Because, you know, the Dharma has to filter down from this sort of elite... And it is. It's filtering. It's filtering. It'll take a while. It's an article uh, in... We had a whole section on uh, Native American uh, connections to the Dharma and interchanges with the Dharma. This is from an article by Eduardo Duran, an Apache Tewa, who's been studying in Vipassana tradition. I recently attended a special retreat for Native Americans taught by Vipassana teacher Joseph Goldstein. Most of the natives were doing meditation for the first time, and afterward Joseph said he was astounded at how steady and still the people were when they sat. That's because we have ceremonies where we're required to sit still for long periods, so we don't seem to have a problem with sitting, at least not physically. Native ceremonies foster profound levels of concentration, and many of them are practices of generating metta for all beings, including the earth. We would be willing to teach some of these practices to Westerners if they want to learn them. When I go to meditation retreats, I always do some native ceremonies on my own. I usually take the pipe and make tobacco offerings, asking the land's permission for us to be there for this purpose of meditation. Often I do this in secret because I don't want to disturb anyone. Meanwhile, I've brought Buddhist mindfulness into my native rituals and ceremonies, which themselves are skillful means to focus the mind. When you add mindfulness to a four-day fasting ceremony, you get a powerful tool for liberation. When I'm doing ceremonial dances now, I try to maintain mindfulness by repeating the mantra, dancing, he knows he is dancing. Hmm. Allen Ginsberg. Uh, he's been in the journal many times, also a great uh, proponent and prophet, old Jewish Buddhist prophet of the Dharma and uh, critic of industrial world and wars and just a, and a, a sweetheart of a man really kept that whole beat generation kind of together and promoted everybody else's books and and uh, a very kind man. Uh, Jack Cornfield and I interviewed him when he just came back from China. He was teaching beat poetry in China. 
This was like, I, I think, right around 1992 or something like that. He said, uh, It's ironic, but the one thing that would possibly have made China's socialism work was the thing they attempted to exterminate, which was the bodhisattva practice, the Buddhist practice of awareness and mindfulness, care and sympathy. The one thing that actually could have made their communism possible was precisely the nerve center that in their blindness they destroyed. He said, maybe our job will be, as China turns to the West, our job will be to take meditation back, re, re, uh, reteach it there. Okay, one of my favorite uh, interviews, two of my favorite interviews coming up, and then a, a humorous thing here, and a little poetry, and what are we doing on time? Okay. Uh, Noah Levine, who, uh, you, as you may know, it started a whole movement called Dharma Punks, and uh, he's brought the Dharma really to a new generation. When I interviewed him, uh, we talked about the songs that go through your mind when you're, set, when you're meditating and you're on retreat. And uh, I, I mean, I, I had a real struggle with it when I first started meditating. Uh, songs would go, would be playing in the background of my mind almost all day for for many days. It was I, th- I thought I was going crazy, couldn't turn them off. And mine were like Proud Mary and uh, <laughs> Strawberry Fields and those those things. So I asked Noah, you know, he said, "Oh yeah, I I, I call this phenomena, by the way, jukebox karma." It's from, you know, plugging in too much. But So I asked him uh, if he got punk rock playing in his head, and he said, sure. On a recent three-month retreat, a Black Flag so- song stuck in my head for a week. I've never heard, I didn't know, never heard of them, but he said with the lyrics, these are the lyrics to the song, I'm about to have a nervous breakdown. My head really hurts. If I don't get out of here, I'm going to go berserk because I'm crazy and I'm wild. The head on my shoulders, I'm going insane. That's the, the lyrics to this Black Flag song. I said, I'm glad I'm in the generation I'm in. I mean, you know, Strawberry Fields is a little mellower. And then he, he had another... another uh, Another song that went through his head was called Bla- from a band called Blast. And he said, as the lyric came up, it's in my blood, it's in my blood, it's in my blood to try to make things change. And as the lyric comes up, the memory of a show appears to me and a slam dancing and maybe getting drunk that night. And that's what's known in Dharma language as papancha. He says... Uh, I created Dharma Punks as a name for our movement, partly because it's a play on Kerouac's Dharma Bums, and reveals that we are all in the same lineage of spiritual American rebels. But I think the name also relieves some of the pressure of being perfect, or even being a Buddhist. The name Dharma Punk says, I love what I love, and I still get angry, and I still have lust, and all that stuff, and I dress funny, and have funny hair, and lots of tattoos, and I'm intentionally offensive in punk ways, And beneath this disguise, this uniform, I'm deeply committed to personal growth and spiritual awakening and service to others. I think that's uh, that's just so right on. He said, my role is to make this practice accessible and applicable for my generation who can't hear about it from your generation. 
one of the most important messages I can relay is that the spiritual practice isn't just for hippies anymore. I I had the great privilege of interviewing John Cage, one of the great uh, artists of the 20th century, uh, composer, classical musician. Uh, He wrote many symphonies and and scores for what turned out to be the, the, the first happenings. Remember back in the 60s there were happenings. Uh... He wrote a piece of music for instruments that can be found in an ordinary living room, for instance. He wrote a piano, piano piece in which the piano keys are never touched, and there is no intentional sound made during the entire performance of the score. Uh, as Cage said, my favorite piece of music is the one we hear all the time if we are quiet. And he was very influenced by uh, D.T. Suzuki and uh, Zen He said, I gave a performance of my piece called Empty Words Part 4 for the students of Chogyam Trungpa at Naropa Institute. The piece goes on for two and a half hours and contains long silences of four and five minutes duration. And then out of that silence, I just say a few letters of the alphabet, following a score which was written through throwing the I Ching based on the journals of Henry David Thoreau. I mean, (laughs) Cage was really a bit mad, but uh, he... Charming sweetheart of a man, you know, just very gracious. Uh, Anyway, he said, I thought it was an ideal piece for a Buddhist audience, but they became absolutely furious and yelled at me and tried to get me to stop the performance. (laughs) The next morning, I had a meeting with Chogyam Trungpa, and he asked me to join the faculty of Naropa. (laughs) He said... uh, some wonderful things. He said, theater takes place all the time, wherever one is, and art simply facilitates persuading one that this is the case, that it's always, that theater is happening all the time. He told me of a statement that Wittgenstein once said, the word beauty has no meaning, it simply means that something clicks or doesn't click for us. Then he said that people should put a clicker in their pocket so that when something doesn't appear to be beautiful to them, they can just take it out and click it. <laughs> and he was—he once went in. He said he once went into a, an, an, an anechoic chamber, which is a uh, made of a special material. It's a room where uh, it's completely without echoes, and it's you can hear you know, everything. And he said, when I got in there, I heard two sounds, one high and one low. When I described them to the engineer in charge, he informed me that the high sound was my nervous system in operation. The low sound was my blood in circulation. He said, I don't need to fear about the future of music. Okay, so uh, one on our—I think it must have been our tenth anniversary. We're, we're just about over here. Uh, our tenth anniversary, we did a little bit of a parody issue, an insert in the Inquiring Mind uh, of a parody. I'll read you uh, just this one little piece from that insert. 
This is a Dharma talk by Ajahn Bhuti. You could say Bhikkhu Bhuti, but Ajahn Bhuti. When I began teaching meditation to Westerners, I immediately observed that you are always sitting down, reading, computing, talking, driving in your cars. You're always on your rear ends. That condition prompted me to begin teaching an ancient Theravada practice that I learned as a child known as getting to the bottom. (laughs) The technique I teach has a long history, and some scholars even say that the focus on the rear end is the entire reason for and meaning of the phrase sitting practice. The beginnings of this practice are, however, commonly traced to an eccentric Thai forest master who became enlightened at age 20 and thereafter never spoke except to say, be seated. (laughs) This instruction can be understood as referring not only to the posture, but to the transformation of consciousness itself into the seat, the place where one sits and comes to rest. The essence of the practice is very simple. One sits and focuses awareness on the buttocks. Are they hard or soft? Do they jiggle slightly on the meditation cushion? We also do a walking meditation in which we focus all our attention on our rear end. Does it bounce or does it sway? (laughs) There is, of course, a natural progression in the practice. For instance, after doing a period of being aware of the gross sensations found in the rear end, students will eventually begin to notice a light appearing, usually somewhere between the two buttocks. The students should then focus on this light until it disappears. Where it vanishes to, nobody seems to know. (laughs) But once a student has firmly connected the mind to the rear end and can hold it there, he or she is called a stream enterer. The path is not complete, however, until one becomes endless, which means that the rear end has disappeared completely. At that point, there is no top or bottom No inside or outside. This endlessness is also the end of the path because there's literally no longer any place to sit. Okay. (laughs) And uh, finally, just briefly here before we close. Um, We've always featured uh, the, the middle two pages of the journal have always been poetry, and uh, we've tried to keep that going, because uh, my co-editor, Barbara Gates, and myself both uh, uh, love poetry, and we call it Poems and Not Poems, the pages, and it's based on a real con poem, which goes like this, who says my poems are poems? My poems are not poems. After you know my poems are not poems, we can begin to discuss poetry. One of my favorite, uh, and one of my favorite poetry sections that we published was uh, haiku poetry uh, that was given to me by Robert Haas, who was for a brief time the uh, Poet Laureate of the United States. And he was translating haiku. And uh, he gave me the haiku of Kobayashi Isa, who lived... uh, the last half of the 1700s and the first half of the 1800s. One of the great Japanese poems, well-beloved Japanese poet, uh, who often wrote his poetry 
to other species or about other species of life. He was uh, had a very hard life. His mother died when he was two. He had three children, all of who died uh, before he did. But uh, he wrote some delightful poetry. I'm going to give you a few of his haiku poems. Summer. This is a summer poem. Don't worry, spiders. I keep house casually. (laughs) This is a spring poem. Oh, owl, make some other face. It's spring. Listen to the frogs. All night they talk about sex. (laughs) The holes in the wall play the flute this autumn evening. If the times were good, I'd ask one more of you to join me. Flies around my food. Mosquito at my ear. Does it think I'm deaf? <laughs> Even among the insects, some can sing, some can't. <laughs> Not yet having become a Buddha, the ancient pine tree dreaming. Out from the darkness, back into the darkness, the affairs of the cat. One human being, one fly in a large room. (laughs) Where there are humans, you'll find flies and Buddhas. Even for the emperor, the nightingale sings the same song. This world of ours, walking on the roof of hell, gazing at flowers. So that's the inquiring mind in 25 years of Dharma in America. Oh, yes, thank you. Thank, thank all those people. Um, just to let you know that uh, the Wisdom Publications is the book, uh, The Best of the Inquiring Mind, will be out uh, probably in late September. You can get the Inquiring Mind sent to your house. Uh, it doesn't cost anything. This journal has been run on donations for 25 years, which is unheard of in the publishing world. Uh, you can just go online, inquiringmind.com, and, so, and give your name and address and uh, donation if you feel like it. Anyway, thank you all for coming tonight. It was, uh, it's always a delight to be here. And uh, I hope our paths cross again, and may you have a wonderful, uh, wonderful evening, the rest of the evening. Uh, just before you leave, uh, it would be a great help if people would uh,
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.